Unless you've been living in a cave with no contact with the outside world for the past few months, then you know that presidential politics and the economy are what everyone's talking about. A lot of us are tightening our belts in the face of rotten economic times, but that doesn't mean we have to live a life of boredom or flee the Big Apple for a more no-frills place to live. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up on this morning's show, advice on where to find free events and how to live cheaply in New York City. For $50 a year, which is just an amazing price, you can join one of many, many, many city gyms. As New York City bargains go, that one's one that's really hard to beat. And for those of you who can't wait for Saturday Night Live, Brooklyn resident Scott Blakeman is here today with his own brand of political humor. I think he chose Sarah Palin primarily for comedians, I think. His slogan may be country first, I think hers is comedy first. Glad you're with us for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. With the state of the economy the way it is, a lot of us are cutting back on the luxuries in life. But we can still have a good time and stay in shape without going broke. Ethan Wolf is here to help us do that. He's the author of Fromer's NYC Free and Dirt Cheap, 364 free events, attractions, classes, and more. Ethan, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you, George. How can you impress a date in New York City without spending a lot of money? Obviously, the last thing you want to do is make yourself out to be a cheapskate. Yeah, that's always the tricky part is going out in Manhattan or in New York and not being forced to spend a lot of money. One suggestion I always have for people looking for a good date is to hit one of the free museum nights as a bunch of institutions in the city on Thursday night, Friday night, where they'll let doors open for pay what you wish or even for free. One that I really like is the Rubin Museum of Art. On Friday night, they're open. It's a gorgeous museum. And down the basement, they have a cinema series. And for $7, which is a minimum that you have to spend at the bar, you get whatever you bought at the bar. Plus, you get to go downstairs and see a film. And they have some amazing names who come in to introduce the film. So that's always a great experience. Plus, if you get there early enough, you can go and wander around the uh, floors and look at the museum. A movie for $7, that's pretty good because elsewhere you have to spend about $12 for a ticket. That's a great deal. And that, another place I like for a cheap date is the New Museum. Have you been down to the New Museum yet? On Not the, yet. the Bowery? Mm-mm. Brand new structure. Uh, it's a little bit maximum security in its look. But inside, they have some great galleries. They have a lot of really good programming. And you're right there in the Bowery, so you're very close to Chinatown. So you could actually take your date out to dinner before or after and probably not have to spend too much money. Where do you suggest eating in Chinatown? Well, there's a bunch of places, some of which are a little bit more than cafeterias with very tinny light and not so nice service. But there's also a bunch of really great places. Uh, One of them is Kanji Village, which is on the Bowery and also another one on Allen Street and has very nice interior and really good food. What about good Cuban food? I love Cuban food. Do you know of anywhere in New York City to get good Cuban on the cheap? Because I pay about $23 an entree, which I guess is not bad overall, but still pretty high. If you open it up to Caribbean, there's a place that I really love. It's Castillo de Hagua. It's on Rivington Street. I'm sure I'm, I'm blowing the Spanish pronunciation. But they have a, a terrific Cuban sandwich. I don't think it's much more than $5. And all the entrees are way, way down there. And uh, all through my neighborhood, I live on the Lower East Side, there remain some very good places to pick up food. It's not specifically Cuban, but you can get some great Dominican, some great Puerto Rican. Any advice on good Italian? Italian's uh, another tricky one in New York because there's so many high-end places. But for the low end, I generally try to steer people away from Little Italy. I think that that's really a a terrible tourist trap. If you're looking for something a little bit more of uh, halfway to go and halfway to sit down, the uh, Pepe Giallo... Pepe Rosso, Pepe Verde, it's not the best, but it's very good. It's very reasonable. And 
Uh, also in the East Village, I think you can do pretty well. Max is hugely popular. It's somewhat trendy, but the, the food there is usually very good, and they have a beautiful back garden if you can stand the weight. If you want to bring your own wine with you to dinner, can you suggest any places where you can do that and not pay a corkage fee? The most famous place, the most classic, is down at the edge of Soho, and it's a place called Evo and Lulu. It's kind of French Caribbean. It's maybe $12, $13 for an entree. There's no corkage fee. used to be this tiny little slot of a space, and there was always a three-hour wait, even if you showed up at, at 6 p.m. for it. But they've expanded to a second storefront, so you can actually get in. It's a classy environment. It's a nice meal, and you don't have to pay any premium for your wine. While we're talking about drinking, let's talk about places where you can drink on the cheap in New York City. Not easy to find these places, I'm sure. Well, yeah, it's uh, always the bar's prerogative to kind of put a hurt on you, especially when you've had a couple and judgment might be a little bit compromised. And the other problem with cheap drinking in New York, I mean, you certainly can find a lot of cheap happy hours, but you usually have to go into somewhat grungy environs to do it. One exception I uh, recently was suggesting to people is a place on Rivington Street. And it's got a very uh, nice environment. And they run their happy hour from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. All the way until 10 o'clock. Yeah. So it's uh, Verlaine. You can have five hours worth of drinking. The house special is a lychee martini. It's only five bucks. You can have a Yingling beer for three bucks. And you got five hours to sit there and drink and get your last one in at 9.55. You can sit there for another 40 minutes and milk it. I love the fact that in your book that you say that if you just want to mix and mingle, don't even bother going inside the bar Hang out outside with the smokers. It's one of the funnier side effects of the Bloomberg, the cruel Bloomberg legacy, besides putting a hurt on a lot of dry cleaners, is that there's huge scenes now outside on the street. I notice all the time on the Lower East Side of just all the smokers. So save yourself the cost of a drink. Just hang out outside. Yeah, and you can meet your mate. Who knows? Let's talk about theater, because I love live theater, a lot of people do, but ticket prices these days, incredible. Yeah, the first instinct I always have for people is to send them down to Off-Off-Broadway, and the trouble with Off-Off-Broadway is a lot of hit and miss. Uh, The quality I've found really, really varies, but I saw a couple of terrific things this year. Uh, I saw a version of Cat's Cradle done as a musical, and I thought it was amazing. I'm sure I paid less than $20 for the ticket, and there was probably 25 people on, on the stage at any given time. So I was very impressed with that. A second option not everybody knows about, most theaters will take uh, ushers, volunteer ushers. They don't want to have to spend to keep on staff a bunch of people who, who hand out the playbills and point people to the seats. So they'll take you as a volunteer. You may have to put on a clean shirt for the occasion. But I wouldn't say every theater in town, but a lot of them will. And if you call up and ask them, they, they're usually hungry for bodies. So that's one great way to get in. There's always TKTS. There's a lot of other different Broadway-related things. I think maybe with the economy falling, if the Europeans aren't racing in to pick up the slack, you will see more discounted programs. And there's a bunch of things related to that. Another option that's a little bit left field, and again, it's hit or miss in quality, is to go to readings. It's oftentimes a a playwright's trying to work through, figure something out, but there's so much talent in New York, you find amazing actors. I've been to a few of them where, oh, isn't that guy, I saw that guy in Law and Order. You recognize a lot of the people who are actually doing the reading, and most of those are free because it's not a full-stage production. They're just happy to have a body in the seat. When a lot of people think about going out in New York City, they immediately think Manhattan. It's the be-all and end-all of nightlife. But I'm sure you can find things outside of Manhattan and the other boroughs to do. Oh, absolutely. And of 
course, uh, once you get away from people paying Manhattan rents, you start to find things get a little bit cheaper. Williamsburg is full, obviously, of uh, residents who are artists and musicians and actors and all kinds of different things, and they need a place to go out and perform. So I would point you in the direction of the bars out there. They need entertainment, too, to compete. There's so many places now. Uh, Zebulon is a really interesting space over in Williamsburg. They have no cover music. It's very, very casual, laid back, nice space. Barbets out in Brooklyn for a while was showing free movies. They've discontinued that out in Park Slope, Brooklyn. But they uh, still have all kinds of great bands that come in. You can go in the back room there and see a 15-piece band. It's uh, by suggested donation. It's usually 5 10 bucks, something like that. But for the quality of the music that you get, it's really a steal. Talking about free music, where else do you suggest even in Manhattan? I was like going up to the lakeside. I, I think they have a really great program for who they pick. It's never a cover. It's in the little back room there, so it's always an intimate performance. It's a bar. I'm sure they'd be happier if you bought a drink, but it's not something they ever enforce. It's a really nice place to hear music. Uh, my street alone, Ludlow Street, has all kinds of free stuff. Uh, living room sometimes has a cover. Sometimes it's free. Sometimes it's free upstairs. You can also go down to pianos. They have some free music there. And Rockwood Music uh, Hall over around the corner. I think they have a one-drink minimum, but it's a hilarious space. It's smaller than this studio, and they manage to have it overflowing just about every night. And in a room that small, the sound is great. What's the best free or cheap thing to do here in the Bronx? Well, I always recommend Wave Hill. I think a lot of people don't know it, but it's so spectacular. Riverdale. In Riverdale. It's beautifully sited. And also, uh, if people haven't made the trip up to the Bronx Botanical Garden, it could easily be the premier public park, public garden in America. And the first time I was up, I was shocked. You see what are arguably virgin forests and waterfalls and all the history of it and the roses if you're there at the right time. I mean, I feel the same way about the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, but the Bronx is, is really spectacular. I know you also recommend hitting up cemeteries. In New York, we get so starved for green space and open space. And I had actually had never been to Greenwood Cemetery out in Brooklyn. And I've made a couple trips just in the last few weeks with my girlfriend. It's totally amazing space, beautiful rolling hills, shady lanes, and then all of the old-time celebrities. And you see these beautiful mausoleums. It's just a spectacular place. And New York and the boroughs, uh, or Manhattan and the boroughs, are, are filled with fascinating. And if you're into history at all, this is an interesting way of kind of, it's almost like reading the index of a, a history book to go and just look at the names and dates. If I'm not mistaken, I think they hand out a map so you can find out where these celebrities are actually buried. Yeah, it's kind of like a reverse Hollywood tour. You can see where they ended up. What about in Queens and Staten Island? Do you have places in the book for people there too? I definitely do. I have a friend in Staten Island. He's always really offended because the first thing I suggest is the ferry, and he always feels like that's really selling Staten Island short. Although the ferry itself is great. I mean, it's beautiful rides. Great views of the harbor. Get the Statue of Liberty, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But over on the other side, Snug Harbor is fascinating. They have a botanical garden in there. It's a really interesting place. And even just to go and explore and walk around, there's beautiful views of Manhattan, which I'm sure will offend him as well. But there's a lot to see and do. Even on that side, and also in Queens, I think that's a really underrated borough, particularly for art. The PS1 is a gorgeous space that's uh, pay-what-you-wish admission, and it's connected to MoMA. So if you have a ticket there, you can go out and get in without even paying the uh, pay-what-you-wish. Another great place out there is the Socrates Sculpture Park. And for the next few months, they have some emerging artist sculptures out, and they're really amazing. And it's a beautifully sited park. It's right on the river, uh, and it's just a very sylvan environment, which 
you don't always associate with queens, but that's what it is. You have free and cheap things broken up by month in your book, too. We are now in October, so what can we look forward to? Well, the most obvious thing for us to enjoy this month is Halloween coming up in a couple weeks. The parade down in the village is always fascinating. It's such a great cross-section of New York. And also, if you go into Central Park, particularly if you've got kids, there's all kinds of stuff to do. There's pumpkin carving, and usually up in the Harlem Mirror, they take the carved pumpkins and float them off. And it's really kind of a, a serenely surreal experience to see them floating away. So I would say definitely take advantage of the Halloween stuff. A lot of us have a lifelong love for learning, but going back to school can get pretty expensive. Do you have any advice in that area? I've had some great experiences. I went back to the new school. I went back to 92nd Street Y, and it wasn't dirt cheap, but the price of any given night for a semester there was quite low. I did that for some writing classes, so I would certainly recommend that. If you're looking even cheaper than that, the Graduate Center over near the Empire State Building has an amazing array of programs. A lot of it's free. There's a ton of free lectures, and even the stuff that you have to pay if you if you have to put the registration, it's not much. It, it prorates very low. Affordable health care is out of reach for a lot of people. Obviously, this is a big issue in this year's presidential race. But are there places in New York City where you can take care of your health for cheap? Uh, can we talk about energy? I'd like to talk about <laughs> uh, it's uh, a question everyone seems to like to answer with a very different question. Uh, healthcare is tough. The city does run several clinics, and that's one way that you can get in. There, if you're uh, a very low-income person, there are free clinics. NYU runs a free clinic. Often suggest looking into uh, medical programs. If you can go through students, you can always save money that way. And another choice, which is not a cheap choice, and maybe it'll get better in the coming years, but uh, you could look into health insurance as one route to that. I get insurance as a freelancer through working today. It's quite affordable. And also New York State, if you work and don't make uh, the minimum income, you can also pick up insurance that way. But as you say, if you're not afraid to have a student take a look at you or do some dental work, you can get that done on the cheap. It's maybe a little less convenient. You're obviously going to spend more time than you would if you were paying big bucks to somebody. But for that small sacrifice, the prices are a fraction of what they are to go with somebody who's been through a program. And everything's supervised. You have professors there. You have real doctors there. So it's not like you're getting some total amateur experience. Your book also includes some advice on where to get mental health taken care of as well. I mean, it's not easy to stay sane in the city, but if you need to go into therapy, you don't have to pay out hundreds of dollars necessarily. Yeah, there's a, a referral service that you can find, and also NYU has, uh, I think, maybe the biggest psychiatry and psychotherapy program in the whole country. And again, it's a sliding scale there, and if you go, you can get hooked up with somebody. It's kind of a strange thing to be trying to save money on that, but when times are tough or if you're feeling the pinch, you're actually probably doing a good thing. You're helping somebody get through a school program, and it's not like a... Uh, early barbershop where you can you can cut on one of those styrofoam heads. You, you need an uh, actual psyche to work on. I like to run, and I can do that for free in Central Park. But where else in New York City can you do things to stay fit and avoid a hefty gym membership? Well, the New York City park system is, is pretty spectacular. We're very fortunate to have the green space that we do. I know it doesn't always seem that way. Uh, I also am uh, on the running-only program, so I just go down to the East River. But for $50 a year, which is just an amazing price, you can join one of many, many, many city gyms, $75 if there's a pool involved. As New York City bargains go, that one's one that's really hard to beat. Really? 50 bucks. 50 bucks. That's it. Now, this edition of your book has 364 free events, attractions, classes, and other things. There's another edition coming out in December. 
yeah, we uh, we wanted to make sure people could do more than one thing a day, so we bumped it up to 390. Ethan Wolf. Ethan is the author of Fromer's NYC Free and Dirt Cheap. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, George. Tune to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. A lot of us get our fix of political humor from Saturday Night Live. But with us now to tickle our funny bones a little earlier is Brooklyn resident and political comedian Scott Blakeman. He joins us on the phone from Chicago where he's visiting with family. Hey, Scott. Hi, George. Nice to hear from you. Let's start off talking about this week's debate. Yes. What did you think? First, I thought it was a rerun of the first debate that they didn't even bother having one. And it seemed like they sort of, you know, covered the same ground pretty much. And I think that the format sort of encourages that. But my question was people were saying, oh, this is going to be McCain's strong suit, the town hall meeting. And it didn't seem to come off that way. I, I didn't feel that it was his strong suit. He was sort of looked like kind of an angry person wandering around. And uh, so I don't know if he really came off as well as people said he might. He walked around a lot. He did walk around a lot. I was exhausted watching him do that. So uh, I don't know. It, it seemed like it was basically the same debate as the first debate, only walking. So I'm thinking for the third debate, they'll just have him lying down just as a contrast. What about how Barack Obama handled it? He pretty much stayed put most of the night. Yeah, he did. And he had a better sense of the camera, I think, because you know if you keep moving around, the camera doesn't know where to follow you. So a lot of the time you saw the back of McCain. So I think Obama had a better sense of, uh, you know, standing there. I don't think voters judge how much you walk as far as how good a leader you could be. So I think that he uh, pretty much, you know, kept the walking to a minimum. I think it worked in his favor. Do you think he took any missteps, though? I don't think he did. You know, that's what the uh, mainstream media sort of focused on, you know, what mistakes. I mean, I thought uh, it was a little unnerving when McCain pointed to Obama and said, that one. And when he, McCain referred to one of the people uh, in the audience, saying, you probably don't know what Fannie Mae or Fannie, uh, Freddie Mac is. And so other than that, I, I didn't think there were missteps. You know, the, basically, neither of them really feel compelled to answer the questions as much. So there's very little missteps when you don't feel you have to answer the question exactly. How much do you take these debates into account when you go into the voting booth? I think generally, at least you know, they seem to be more confirmation of what you already think. An ideal debate would be, as I have in France, where, you know, you sit at a table and it's a discussion for an hour and a half and you could really follow up with things. I think then you get a true measure of people. So I think the way it's set up now is that whoever you feel predisposed to going in, that's who you'll pretty much stay with. I mean, you know, I think in this case, a big gaffe one way or another might throw things off, but it doesn't change things too much. I mean, the more people watch, the better. Of course, the vice presidential debate had higher ratings, so I don't know what that says necessarily. I think I was watching the debate on CNN last night, and they were waiting after it was over to see if McCain and Obama would shake hands. So yeah. much attention focused on that. Did you catch that? Yeah, you know, it, it's, again, it, the focus, unfortunately, is on these little things, and did he look at him and this, and it seems like the, the CNN, other outlets, they don't have patience for just really analyzing 
the issues. And I think that the debate formats aren't that helpful particularly. And, you know, it really should be, again, sitting down at a table because you want to get somebody's thought process. And I think that's much more important. And, you know, with the vice presidential debate, it might be a little tough with Sarah Palin to find a process. But I think that would be the most helpful way to have a debate. Some of what candidates say during debates turns out to be entirely false or a variation of the truth. Do you take time to do fact-checking? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's one thing, I guess, that CNN, they, they, they do. And, of course, when they get involved with, this, you know, both senators, it's a lot. Well, you voted 38 times for this and 25 times for that. And that's kind of an arcane way of looking things a lot of times because there's all these complicated amendments and things like that. But for the most part, you know, what, what troubles me is just the trend in the campaign now to really be uh, mean-spirited. And unfortunately, Sarah Palin's job seems to be, she seems to be appealing to the attack dog vote, I guess, now. And I think that's unfortunate. That doesn't serve anything. And, you know, the kind of things they're bringing up, that's not, uh, you know, very helpful. And that, that deserves fact-checking. You know, the scurrilous rumors that people email each other, those things, there should be some email fact-check bureau. And then you should get emails saying, by the way, that email you just got is totally false. So I think that would be helpful. But otherwise, you don't have a big scoreboard at the Blakeman household. Uh, not really. Well, I have a small apartment in, in Brooklyn. So maybe if I had a large one of John McCain's houses, then maybe I could put a big scoreboard in it. Let's talk more about John McCain's pick for VP. Mm-hmm. Why do you think he chose Sarah Palin? Well, I think he chose Sarah Palin primarily for comedians, I think. It's a, his slogan may be country first, I think hers is comedy first. It's a little baffling, I don't know. I mean, initially it gave him a little bump, I mean, among his, his base, but I bill myself as a progressive political comedian, so I, don't, I wouldn't agree with a conservative ideology, but I would respect somebody like a Tim Pawlenty or someone like that who is a conservative, but who's an intelligent person who has a certain point of view. She, she's trying to appeal to the middle class, voter, working class voters, she feels the only way to do that is to drop your G's. And I think she dropped so many G's that her real last name is actually Paling. So you're not a big fan of You Betcha? Not really. No, I'm a little wary of anybody who says You Betcha a lot. It's, uh, I don't know how nice they generally uh, are. And uh, so, you know, I think most people, and Republicans and Democrats agree, she's not qualified for this. And, and uh, you know, the mayor of Wasilla, I think Wasilla, there's less people in my apartment building in Brooklyn. So, you know, I don't think that really qualifies you. Do you think, though, she's treated unfairly by the media? No. In fact, I was reading something earlier today that, in fact, she might be getting an easier ride than, let's say, Hillary got. And I think some of the things that she said, I, I think there's a, even uh, Gwen Eiffel, who I thought did a wonderful job, but I think she was a little wary of saying certain things because the kind of the right-wing smear campaign saying, oh, Gwen Eiffel is writing a book that involves Obama. And so I think they could go further because she really is setting herself up for these things. Uh, so I, I don't think she's being treated unfairly. You mentioned Gwen Eiffel. Do you have any other thoughts on the other moderators that we've seen so far, Tom Brokaw, Jim Lehrer? When Jim Lehrer in the first debate said, just say, you know, tell that to him. I think it's sort of like a therapy session more than a debate. But I think people suggest this before. I think having no moderator would be the best and really just have the guys sit down and just have a conversation and see where it goes. You know, I think the moderators are kind of, you know, hamstrung by the rules and, and uh, you know, they do the best they can. But it kind of reminded me as a comedian, you know, when we perform at a, a club, like clubs in New York City, you know, you get a light when you have to get off. And uh, both McCain and, and, and Obama kind of ignored the light. But I've done that in the past, too, so I can, you know, empathize with them. How about Joe Biden? Is he giving you any material? Not only is he not giving as much material, but you don't really hear much about him, which actually is the traditional role of the vice presidential candidate. So, you know, I guess we're so caught up with Palin that there's not as much uh, 
uh, there with Biden, although I think he you know, exhibited great self-control you know, during the vice presidential uh, debate. And that's kind of the thing that's a little unfortunate. That's the whole goal of every candidate to just play it safe and not really talk about specifics. And I guess it's because if they did, then they might get into some trouble, I guess. So Sarah Palin certain transcended that with uh, her way of looking at the world. And I mean, because there are a lot of important issues, you know, the, the economic situation and um, House passed the bailout bill last week. You know, supporters said it's not a, a bailout, it's a buyback. I love when they use these expressions. They also said it's not a recession, it's a reception. Actually, it's a lovely fair that's passed hors d'oeuvres and so, you know, these are things we need to be focusing on. There are a lot of serious issues around, and just the fact that a candidate comes on Saturday Night Live doesn't make me feel better about them. I think we need to really hear where they stand on the issues. Scott, what are your thoughts on the nation's economic troubles? Do you think that things are really that bad? I, I think they are. You know, I'm not really an expert, but then again, when you watch CNBC, I'm not sure what if the experts are experts either, because they pretty much say, oh, I think it's going to get much better or worse. You know, they basically cover all the bases. So, uh, yeah, I think there's, you know, really been a whole trend ever since Ronald Reagan of sort of just get rich and whatever it takes. And uh, my goal really would be to see just a whole mindset change, not just bailing out. I don't know if that really works, but, you know, there was that famous movie Wall Street in the late 80s with Michael Douglas as a greedy Wall Street broker. I would love to see in this day and age a movie called Main Street, and the hero is a sociology professor at Fordham who's a compassionate, great guy and who inspires his students. And I'd like to see... Sociology professors become the people, every job everybody wants to have and the women want to go out with. You know, I think that would be a nice change, just to not be so obsessed with money and be obsessed really with helping people. What do you think of that term Main Street? Do you think it's thrown about too much? Well, since everybody's using it, I think it's probably thrown around too much. But, you know, again, unfortunately, people need to come up with sound bites, so that's what they say. I mean, obviously, Main Street, I guess there is a Main Street in Dumbo in Brooklyn, but Main Street is different everywhere. So, But I do think there is a sense of trying to you know, we should worry about the interests of people, not just huge corporations, and really just change the way we look at things. Do you miss Hillary Clinton in the race for the White House? Hillary? Well, I think Hillary would have been a great, you know, candidate, and I respected the fact that she said every vote must count. Of course, she wanted every vote to count except her vote in favor of the war in Iraq. It's like, vote for every vote. Ignore that one. You know, I, I voted yes because I was against the war. I felt that was the best way to stop it by starting it, because how could you stop it until you started? And I did vote yes, uh, but in a dismissive way. I flicked as I voted yes. So I would have liked to see her, and I, I don't think Bill Clinton has served her well. I thought he was an excellent president, but he hasn't been a great campaigner. And, and I'd like to see him come out a little more enthusiastically for Obama. Also, he seems a little tepid. He was campaigning in Florida last week, Clinton, for Al Gore, actually. And Bill Clinton's reputation has gotten a little tarnished, and maybe he should tour the U.S. with Ralph Nader. You know, maybe they can call it the uh, We Ruined Our Legacy Tour. What are the two things that you'll miss most about George W. Bush? Well, you know, people ask as a political comedian, you know, uh, you know will you miss George W. Bush? I mean, who's the best president for comedians? And to me, you know, I became a political comedian because, not to sound overly earnest, because, uh, you know, I care about what's going on in the world and I want to let people laugh about it and, and, you know, hear what I think about it. So I, I can't think of anything other than the fact that he has given us material, like when he was defending his No Child Left Behind bill, President Bush, uh, he actually said, children's do learn. So, you know, apparently President Bush is a child who's been left behind. But I won't miss that. I, I, you know, I think, you know, whoever becomes president, you know, I would like to see a smart person become president. There's plenty of issues that go on in the world. You just look at the newspaper every day. There's plenty of things going on. And, uh, you know, it would be nice to have somebody who could pronounce nuclear. Uh, apparently Sarah Palin also says nuclear. So uh, I guess she studied 
English with President Bush. So, you know, so I won't miss anything really about uh, President Bush. And judging by his popularity ratings, very few other people will, too. In fact, I think now it's down to about 25, his poll numbers, and uh, not even percent, just 25. I guess you'll always be able to find material regardless of who's in office, right? Absolutely. And as I say, it's not only based on who's the president, it's just just things that go on in the world. And, you know, my political humor isn't just focused on who the president is. There's just so many things that happen every day. So uh, there'll be, uh, you know, I think we could have a great president and also plenty of material to go around for political comedians. Scott, what are some of the dumbest quotes you've heard from the presidential candidates? Sarah Palin, I don't know if you can call them quotes because she hasn't really spoken in complete sentences too much, it's, uh, which actually is a, uh, really a, a skill. She, when she was interviewed by Katie Couric, she spoke as if her comments were being edited, you know, and yet they were one continuous thought. So I couldn't even quote it because it was just so nonsensical. And, uh, you know, at that point I found her actually kind of funny, but once she started sort of being the attack dog. I think there's, she's become less funny that way. So, uh, you know, I, I can't think in particular. I'm sure that there are some. I mean, there's certain lines that media asked. I was watching the other day, and the question was, uh, who would you rather drive cross-country with, McCain or Obama? And it's um, kind of a question, who would you rather drive cross-country? I would rather fly by myself because uh, I get nauseous on long car rides. So sometimes the questions can be kind of strange. You're a New Yorker. What do you think about Mayor Bloomberg trying to run for a third term? Well, I, I can understand why he might want to run. I mean, you know, if I think if you're going to change term limits, you should let the people vote on that. And I heard not only Bloomberg does he want to run for a third term, but he wants to change the name of the office to King also. So uh, I don't think I'd go along with that. But he's, you know, he has done some good things for the city, and he is very wealthy, which is fine. I mean, he, you know, he chooses not to live in Gracie Mansion, and you know you're wealthy when the mansion is a come down. It's like, thank you. I'd rather live in much, my much larger home, but thank you. Scott Blakeman, thanks so much. Thank you very much, George. Scott Blakeman is a political comedian from Brooklyn. He's online at scottblakeman.com. We're online at wfuv.org. That's where you can find archives of Cityscape and to learn how to podcast the show. Thanks for hanging out with us this week. I'm George Bodarki. Our producer is McCall Neria. Have a great weekend. <laughs>